The story that we read today has its beginning in the town of Joppa, and it ends in the town of Caesarea. They're only about 30 miles apart, and you can travel today from one to the other in about 30 minutes in a car. In Peter's day, it would have taken a day to a day and a half to walk there. But that's the only thing they really had in common, because when it came to religion and culture and just about any other way you'd like to measure the two cities, uh, they were like light years apart. Uh, Joppa, even in Peter's time, was an ancient city. It dates all the way back to the early Canaanites. Some say its history goes back five, six, maybe even 7,000 years. The only natural harbor on the entire coastline, but not much of a harbor. It's pretty shallow. Uh, even in Peter's time, they weren't able to park large boats there. And so it became just a small fishing village for the most part. But we find that the excavators have uncovered a series of civilizations. I mean, going back to the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, even the ancient Israelites. And then, of course, we have when, during the time of Solomon, it's at Joppa that the ships brought timbers from Lebanon that he used to build the, the uh, temple. And also we read about the prophet Jonah, who in the days of Jeroboam II sought to escape the will of the Lord by God getting onto a ship in Joppa, hoping to go to Tarshish, which was believed to be the farthest destination uh, uh, in the whole entire world, on the other side of the Mediterranean Ocean at least. After the destruction of Israel, their captivity in Babylon, it was taken over by the Babylonians and then the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, and of course, then came the Muslims, the Crusaders, uh, the French, the British, and ultimately, today, it's in the possession of the modern, town, modern uh, nation of Israel. Uh, today, it's really nothing more than a quaint fishing village. It's got some wonderful little artisan shops and some beautiful restaurants. In fact, um, uh, when we're in Israel, it's one of my favorite places when we're in Tel Aviv. My wife and I will walk from our hotel and have a cappuccino or dinner in one of the wonderful restaurants that they have all through this little medieval village, essentially. But I think it's important in Peter's time, this was a Jewish village, a thoroughly kosher village. Um, and that really was a place where Peter would have been real comfortable. Caesarea, on the other hand, was not a place he would have gone necessarily, willingly, or would have considered to be a comfortable place to be. Caesarea was um, on the other spectrum when it came to cities. I mean, it was built only 60 years earlier, which made it a relatively new city. Uh, it was built by Herod the Great, who was responsible for all of the large uh, edifices we see throughout the land of Israel today that are still standing. He's considered to have been one of the world's greatest builders, building the temple in Jerusalem over a period of some 46 years. But it was interesting because it was also the seat of Roman power. Herod built it to be really a Roman administrative city and the, so that they could carry out the kind of things, build the temples and have the statues and the banners and other things like that that wouldn't have been tolerated in the city of Jerusalem. In order to make it this kind of central city, he built a harbor. In fact, it was one of the largest harbors in the ancient world. Some say it was even larger or larger than the uh, Ostio Antica, which is the harbor of Rome. And uh, it could house at least 100 large ships at one time, protecting them from storm and other problems that might arise. 
But all around this harbor, he also built a city, a city with a population we estimate to be at least 50,000. Some people say as high as 100,000 people. And it possessed everything that an ancient city of modern perspectives would have required. Um, basically, it had a theater that could seat over 4,000 people. It, it had an amphitheater. It had a... Um, basically uh, brothels and bathhouses and a hippodrome for chariot racing. I mean, it literally had everything that a person could want in that day if they were of a Greek or Roman persuasion. It was built around the idea of experiencing comfort, pleasure, and entertainment. And as a consequence, it would have been the one of the most urbane, cultured, luxurious, and, and wealthy and powerful cities in the entire Roman world at that time. In fact, when the Roman consul, a man by the name of Marcus Agrippa, uh, he was the governor of all Romans, Rome's province in the east, the eastern half of the empire, very close personal friend and had married into the family of Caesar Augustus. And so he was really a, a powerful general, leader, and builder. And he came in 17 BC to visit this new city that Herod had, bought, had built. And he made this interesting comment. He said that Caesarea was more Roman than Rome. And in many ways, that was true. Rome at that point was not really a nice place to be. It had really become fairly decrepit and broken down. But it was from here that Rome ruled over its possessions, particularly of Judea, and essentially was viewed as being the location of Jewish oppression. Here it was that Pontius Pilate would have lived most of the year. He had a luxurious palace that was built out into the ocean overlooking the Mediterranean. And in fact, it's the one place where we have evidence of Pontius Pilate's existence. You would say that his name is quite literally chiseled in stone. There's a commemorative plaque that was built during the time of Emperor Tiberius. And the plaque has written on it these words, Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Prefect in other words, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. And so here we have it chiseled in stone and uh, evidence that this was a, the place that Pontius reigned and that he was actually an historical character. Um, it was also home base for about 3,000 Roman legionnaires, uh, basically who were tasked with enforcing the Pax Romana or the famous Roman peace. That was their primary job. Rome understood that peaceful countries were powerfully uh, prosperous countries and therefore they were concerned about maintaining peace above and beyond everything else. It's also possible that Cornelius, who we're told was a uh, centurion of the Latin regiment or the Latin band, uh, basically, in other words, he was a Roman. He probably had Roman citizenship and came from some area around Rome. He may have been what we call the primus pilus, which is basically the first centurion over a cohort of 500 men. It'd be similar to being like a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel or colonel in command of a battalion today. Usually a battalion runs three to 800 men in our army uh, today. And this was, in other words, this was a man who was of high standing. He was a, a high ranking officer. And uh, these men 
were really the backbone of the Roman army. They were rock hard in, in their discipline and in their experiences. These are the men who had seen combat on numerous occasions. You see, in the Roman army, your term of service was 25 years. If you lived through that, then you received a generous reward usually. But many of them didn't survive that long because of the combination of combat, hard living, and uh, the simple diseases that would spread so quickly through the camps many times. But these were men who were known for their endurance, their hardness, their strength, and above all, their courage. They were the men who stood at the front of their troops and walked into the face of the enemy and uh, fought for their own survival over and over again. Certainly, Cornelius... uh, uh, was all that when he arrived in Caesarea and we was posted there. And it was probably a great posting because it was a prosperous area, it was a beautiful area, and it was a wealthy area, and a guy could do real well for himself. But something happens when he reaches Caesarea. He encounters Judaism. And like many of his day, who had become weary of the corruption and the immorality of paganism, that when they heard the reading of the Old Testament and that there's a God who has standards and rights and there's good and evil and right and wrong, in fact, the very thing that oftentimes troubled the ancients was the injustice of their culture and the injustice of their religious system. The the gods that they served weren't caring about right or wrong. They were as peevish and petty as human beings, just with a whole lot more power. But he encounters Judaism, and it says that he and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. We know at this time that there were a lot of Gentiles that would sit in the synagogues. They wouldn't be able to participate in the service, but they could listen to the prayers. They could listen to the reading of the scriptures, which was most important to them. And they were referred to as God-fearers. That was the term that was used. They hadn't converted to Judaism, but they were keeping the laws of God. They were under what the Jews often called the Noahic covenant, the covenant that Noah had with God. Um, It was in the midst of this time of praying that God speaks to him and says, your prayers essentially have been answered. And we can only assume that his prayer was to know God and to experience his saving grace. And that's when these two men, who could not have been more different, have an amazing encounter and become, as, as Paul would later explain to the Ephesians, one in Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 2.11, Paul writes the, the following. He says, formerly, you were Gentiles by birth. He could have been speaking this right to Cornelius. And called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God, in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile at that time. By abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. All those statements that Paul makes in that letter to the Ephesians speaks of the hostility and the disagreement, the dislike that exists between Jews and Gentiles. That the, many of the Gentiles considered them to be uh, strange and unusual. In fact, they called them atheists because they rejected all the pagan gods. The Jews themselves were even more disrespectful to those who weren't of their faith, often calling them dogs and other terms that weren't very flattering. To Cornelius, though, the vision that he received as he was praying was, was very clear. The message was simple, and that's why his response is immediate. He hears it, he understands it, and he acts upon it. Part of that was that his mind wasn't cluttered with a lot of concepts that Peter had to work through. For Peter, the process was lengthier. It was harder. And to him, the vision probably seemed very confusing and the message was not clear at all, which may explain why it's repeated three times. It was more like to him a bad dream than a divine vision which undoubtedly is why it was repeated to him three times and then followed by the same message each time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Therein lie the problem. Good Jews don't eat pork, they don't eat snakes, they don't eat buzzards, they don't eat clams, they don't even get to eat lobster. But I tell you, and they also did not associate with Gentiles. You see, the church was still in its infancy, and the idea that Gentiles could be saved and even incorporated into the body was uh, really something nobody had really thought possible. It just wasn't even a consideration. It wasn't like they had begun a debate on this topic. I mean, it was just considered out of hand that it was not something that was right or appropriate. I mean, they must have considered when they heard news of him going up to Caesarea that Peter had become a heresy. They certainly considered him to be in sin, as we read later on in chapter 11, where he returns to Jerusalem, it says, and the apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God so instead of rejoicing, we find they say, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision, that means those who believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation, they criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. You see, the idea of eating with them was the most horrible transgression you could commit because everything in the Middle Eastern world, even today, surrounds the table. So that when you sit down and eat at somebody's table and you share a plate with them, you are entering into a covenant of brotherhood or what they call a covenant of salt. You basically, if we eat together, I'm committed to protect and provide for you into the future. And the idea was that to keep Jews from intermarrying with pagans, you would forbid them to ever eat with them because you could never get to the marriage contract without first sitting down at the table and eating together. So this had meant more than just eating unclean foods, as that might be the case, but also because it meant that you were being drawn into idolatry and paganism by simply sitting down and having a meal with them. Well, 
what they were really losing sight of and had really hadn't brought together was the fact that the prophets had long before foretold that the Gentiles would be a target of God's redemptive plan. In Isaiah 42, he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Hosea, in the second chapter, he said, I will say to those who are called not my people that you are my people and they will say you are my God. But to most, this meant that they would become Jews just like them, that they would fully and completely convert, which meant they would also have to fully and completely separate themselves from their past life. I mean, no longer associate with family members or even marital members or even children, but they would become wholly and fully and completely Jewish, separated from the non-Jewish world. And if you add to this that the rabbis had spent centuries building what they called a fence around the Torah, around the law. Today we refer to it as the oral law, but it's no longer just oral. It's written down in Talmudic writings, recording all of these stipulations, requirements, and things that they need to do to make sure that you never get close to violating the law. In fact, Alfred Edersheim in his uh, classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, illustrates some of the restrictions that they were required to observe. It said, no pious Jew would sit down at the table with a Gentile. If a heathen were invited to a Jewish house, he might not be left alone in the room, else every article of food or drink on the table was henceforth to be regarded as unclean. In other words, he might touch the table, touch the food, touch the plate, touch the drink, and suddenly make everything unclean by his touch. It goes on, it was not lawful to either rent a house or field or sell cattle to a heathen. Any article, however distantly connected with heathenism, was to be destroyed. Thus, he says, if a weaving shuttle had been made of wood grown in a grove devoted to idols, every web of cloth made by it had to be destroyed. And if such pieces had been mixed together, they, these all became unclean and had to be destroyed. The separation went much beyond what ordinary minds might be prepared for. Now, it it's really sounds crazy, but that shows the degree to which they were trying to avoid falling into idolatry. Why were they so passionate and concerned about this? Well, because that was what led to the destruction in the Babylonian captivity. They had really gotten entangled in idolatry. It's interesting what the excavators tell us around Jerusalem. They say that prior to the Babylonian destruction, they have, they have multiple examples of small idols and other uh, pagan votive objects that they've discovered in the digs. But after the return from Babylonian captivity to this day, they have never found a single idolatrous item in any of those later excavations. So essentially, they learned the lesson about idolatry, but they went from one extreme really to another extreme where they essentially made their, their disciplines the God that they worshipped more than the God that they were seeking to speak about. In fact, that's even kind of illustrated by the daily prayer that pious Jews pray today every morning. They'll say, uh, every man will pray, blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. That's the first plenty. You didn't make me a Gentile. Secondly, a slave. Thirdly, a woman. And fourthly, an ignoramus. 
I mean, these are the things the man is thanking God for not doing for him. And part of it is that uh, a Gentile doesn't keep the law. A slave doesn't keep the law. A woman keeps less of the law than a man is required to keep. And if you're ignorant, you don't keep the law at all because you don't even understand what you're called to do. So he says, I thank you that I'm born a man so that I can keep as much as the law as, as I can understand. But at the same time, if we look back, uh, it's clear that Jesus' biggest plan for his church was not to become just another Jewish sect or becoming the most or biggest Jewish sect. In fact, he told them in Matthew 16 in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach to all nations. The term nations could be literally translated, preach to all the Gentiles. The intention was the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Luke 13, 29, it says, Jesus said, one day people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. And then he says to the Pharisees, and you won't be there. You won't be invited because of your hypocrisy and sin. In John 10, 16, he told him, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. And lastly, the last thing Jesus said before he left this earth in Acts 1, 8, he said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, so far we've seen them reach Jerusalem. We've seen them reaching Judea. And we've even seen them reach Samaria. Now, Samaritans were viewed a little bit differently because they believed that they were keeping the law. They did observe the Torah and they studied it, but they just believed that they were the chosen people, not the Jews. And that's a whole different issue. But the worst of all was a Gentile who had no regard for the things of God. And again, when he says, go to the ends of the earth, he's not saying to find every Jew you can find everywhere, but to find all people who will respond to my message. It would be many years before the entire church uh, would share Paul's understanding. I mean, we believe that it was at least 10 years before Cornelius is brought into the church by Peter. Um, but, you know, it's really the basis of what Paul was expressing when he said in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, he says, in the eyes of God, you are an inheritor of all the things that God promised to Abraham if you have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter your race, your status, your culture. It doesn't, none of those things matter because suddenly we become unified in the person of Jesus. Even in Peter's mind, the Gentiles were, though, were too far away to have access to the Father by one spirit. And that's why even though he's in Joppa, just a few miles from Caesarea, it doesn't even enter his mind to go there to evangelize that massive city because he's simply going to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet, changing people is what God's all about. And because God never changes, we must if we want to experience the good things that God has for us. I mean, when I come to Christ and I say, Father, forgive me for my sins, that I'm a sinner, and I ask you to wash my sins and grant me the gift of eternal life and send your Holy Spirit to live and to reign inside of my heart, that is what we call a change moment. It usually we call it the crisis of conversion. You've come to a moment where you recognize that the way I'm living my life is no longer fulfilling, and it's not leading to anything positive. And so I'm choosing to embrace a new way of life. 
And if that isn't what you're doing, then you probably haven't had a true conversion experience because that's the idea that we're inviting God to work massive changes in our life. Now, the problem that, that most of us have is we want God to make massive changes in our life, but we just don't want those changes to be in us. We want them to be around us. You know, it's kind of like some people say, give me more money, give me greater health, give me greater power, uh, bring me friends and, and influence and all those good things in my life. But when God says, well, rather than concerning ourselves with temporal things that will pass away, why don't we focus upon the one eternal thing that will never pass away, and that is your soul. And I think this is a, there's an amazing shift in American culture, and I think it's because of the influence of materialism and the allure that it has, that we lose sight of the fact that God is far more concerned about the work he's doing inside of you than any work he's ever going to do through you that we focus on the outward expression of our faith when God says, I want you to focus on the inward expression of my faith. As one of my colleagues used to put it so well, he said that if you take care of your depth, God will take care of your breadth. And we find that most of the time we focus so much on the outward breadth of our lives that we don't really concern ourselves with going deep. And that's probably the struggle that we have with God's changes in our lives because it is God trying to get deep inside of what's going on in our life to bring about those changes. If those changes take place, all the externals will take care of themselves. But until we come to that place of being absolutely surrendered and being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to find ourselves wrestling with this thing called the Christian life. But as I look at this, changes, how Paul was changed on the road to Damascus, Peter was changed on the ro roof of Simon the Tanner, and Cornelius is changed in the rotunda of the mansion that he lived in within the city of Caesarea. But none of them would ever be the same men after that. They had this encounter with the angels of God who spoke truth into their life, and they couldn't go back. And that's one of the things that when God begins working changes in your life, it may be difficult, it may be painful even at some points, but it's one of those things you don't want to go back to where you once were. Now, I admit, many times God's taken me through seasons. I said, Lord, if I never have to go through a season like that again, I, I'll be so appreciative. But the whole point is I can never say I'm not happy that you did it because the things that God changes us in us when we go through those seasons. But, you know, it's interesting how that Peter himself said he comes to this great realization. It seems stupid to us, but to him it was a major step. When he says later on in verse 34, we'll talk about next week, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. That's an interesting phrase to me how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Now, I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy right now, and it's repeated over and over again. God's saying to Israel, don't show favoritism, don't show partiality, treat everybody exactly the same. It says it so many times, it's kind of like an echo inside of your head. The redundancy really focuses upon the emphasis of God saying, treat everybody equitably, the same way, fairly and justly. And so we know that, and yet we'll go out and view somebody as being lesser than us or being better than us. We may treat somebody nicer than we'll treat somebody else. And Peter is at this point saying, you know, I've, I knew the concept of, uh, of favorite, not being favorite, not showing partiality. I understood the concept of treating people fairly, but suddenly I realized that this is a concept that God wants me to take really seriously and understand. 
uh, what we call this today is a, a paradigm shift. And when you use it in, in social technological terms, it means basically a fundamental shift, shift in one's understanding or underlying assumptions about something. Uh, in other words, we, we looked at something, we believed it one way, and suddenly we realized that there's more to it than we recognized. It's a, a, a paradigm shift. We're just seeing it from a whole different perspective. What makes this kind of shift so difficult is because it always begins with confusion. And that's basically why three times that we find the Lord reacted to Peter and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat, and puts out this menu, this buffet of stuff that nobody on their right mind would want to eat, lizards, snakes, and a whole line of other things. And each time he responds with horror. Surely not, Lord. He says, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And each time the Lord rebukes him and says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. So we see God is just keeps on reiterating and reiterating and reiterating the same thing to get Peter to come into such a state of confusion and basically the term perplexity is what I use to become so perplexed that he begins to step back and reflect on what God is trying to say. Many of us keep so busy, we live such rushed lives that we have few occasions where we're stopped dead in our tracks and we have to reevaluate what's going on. This current crisis that we're in as a country is really kind of an example for that. All of us, myself included, have had to step back and reimagine really or rethink or recalculate how we're going to do life under these differing circumstances, particularly in how we're going to do church under these particular circumstances. But I, I love the way the, the reading today ends with this statement. It says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon was. They come to the gate and they start knocking on the door. We're looking for a man named Simon Peter. It's interesting, this word wondering is a, is a compound word in Greek. It's dia aporeo. And, and, and the dia refers to thoroughly. It's a prefix that means something is thoroughly or completely. And then it's intensified, used to intensify this other word, apareo, which means no way out. Thoroughly, no way out is what it literally would translate. It means to be totally and deeply perplexed about something because we have no solution. We're looking at a problem. There seems to be no way to fix the problem. And after we go through a whole list of possible solutions, we find that there's no way out. And what's important to understand in this story is God put Peter into this moment of perplexity because that's where change begins to take place in our life. As I say that, I wonder how many of us right now who are listening to me uh, are, feel like we're in a place of perplexity. We're looking at our life and saying, I, I, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to address the problems. For you, it may be an employment issue, an income issue. Uh, it could be a relational dynamic. I mean, there's an unending list of possible things that can be disturbing in our life. And when we come to those moments, do we embrace them as opportunities to grow in Christ, or do we see them as assaults on our dignity, our identity, or our life purpose and goal? Let me tell you, however you view it is going to have a tremendous impact upon how you respond. I think that what we have to understand is someone once put it this way, that if you're in Christ, you live in an upside down world. In other words, Jesus said the things that are highly esteemed by men 
are the things that God often despises. So fame and power and influence and all those kind of things that we esteem so highly, the acclaim of men, the applause of men, God says, you know, he, he really cares nothing for them. And that means that we shouldn't either. What we should desire above everything else is the applause of heaven, the esteem of God. And that's why God brings change into our lives because I, I love, Max Lucado said many years ago, and I, I've always loved this statement. He said that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And in that statement, he's implying that God is going to bring changes or change agents into your life that are going to throw you into a state of confusion and then into a state of perplexity. And you're going to fall down before God and say, God, I don't know. I have no answers. I have no solutions. I don't know what to do next. Some of us are afraid to ever be in that kind of a place. We, we fear that kind of weakness. But let me tell you, friends, as Paul would later say, it's in that kind of weakness that we find not only the solutions and the insights and the answers, but we experience the power of God. As we'll see next week, Peter had to walk for a couple of days with a group of men that he didn't know to meet a man he had never met and to find out why he had been sent there in the first place. That's why I often wonder, Peter, sometimes Peter talked about his lack of faith in stepping off the boat. First of all, I never would have stepped off the boat in the first place. But secondly, he was a man of amazing faith. He was, once he committed himself to something, he followed through. But I often look at that and saying, what did he expect that he was going to find? I guarantee you he had no idea. And so some of you are right in that fledgling moment right now. You're, you're, your life's been disrupted and things aren't the way it is. And now you're kind of beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel and you're, you're cautiously stepping forward and wondering where this is going to lead. Let me tell you, friend, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him and you've cried out and saying, God, I don't know what to do, you're going to find suddenly there's a path that you're walking down. You, it'll be a season probably before you know what the end result is going to be. But the end result is going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to look back and say, I'm thankful for God in keeping me going forward and not letting me give up. And I just encourage you, friends, don't give up. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that as we reflect on these things that we would give the Holy Spirit permission to work your God-ordained changes in our life. There's none of us who doesn't need to be changed. I mean, we've all and will always have stuff in us that you're going to want to address. And we'll never be different and completely different until the great change comes where you said in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, we will be changed. And that's when we leave this world and we enter into your holy presence. God, help us to be people, though, who will let you do that work that Christ might manifest himself increasingly through the way that we live our lives every day. We ask this with all of our hearts and all of our passions, Lord, in Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, as we always do when we're together in worship, we usually end our service with a time of worship. And we do it because we really want people to reflect on what God has spoken to their hearts through the service up to this point. And I pray that you would just really uh, invite God to speak to you as you enter into this last session and the last season of prayer that we have today and say, God, I, I fear the changes you might bring, but give me the faith to trust you and to receive them 
that you might be glorified in me and I might have the joy of experiencing your great works in my life. God bless you and go in his grace.